Hey everybody, I'm Mike Levy and this is yet another episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. Today is another one-on-one interview. I'm talking to Pink Bike tech editor Seb Stott. Now Seb has been around for a while. He was at Bike Radar in MBUK before joining us last February. And there's a pretty good chance you've seen one of his super in-depth bike reviews or product comparisons where he goes super deep on the tech. He's also done a bunch of interesting articles like the importance of handlebar height and why it's often overlooked. Does a lockout actually make climbing faster? We're going to talk lots about that one, Seb. Why your bike might have less travel than claimed and why a lower shock position doesn't make a bike more stable. So I've got a bunch of questions for Seb about those articles and how his degree in experimental physics helps. But first, Seb, where are you and how are you? I'm good. Yeah, as I said, I've got a little bit of a cold, so hopefully I don't sound too um, muffled. But um, yeah, I'm good. Uh, I'm in Peebles in the Tweed Valley uh, in Scotland. I moved here last November, so I'm really enjoying it. The riding. I heard there's some pretty decent riding there, eh? Yeah, it's really good. It's quite a unique uh, kind of style of trails, but it's it's fantastic here. What, what's unique about it? How is it different? Um, well, if you saw any of the EWS coverage, you kind of see what I mean. It's like it's very tight. There's a lot of tight trees. Uh, not a huge amount of jumps. Yeah. Um, you can find them, but most of the trails are just like tight trees, roots. Um, it's really good fun, though. Have your handlebars gotten narrower since you moved there? Yeah, so I always used to ride 800, um, and yeah. I almost straight away went to 780. I think I'm going to go to 760. Um, yeah i think like the narrower i can get used to the better so yeah i'll try and sort of wean myself off of wide bars like i always used to ride 680 and seem to manage okay <laughs> back in the day so probably probably not go that far but like you can kind of get used to anything but the tree totally are wide so yeah i actually jesse melamed lives in squamish here and i ran into him up on the mountain a couple of days ago and i sat on his bike briefly and he's running 750s <laughs> Like, very narrow <laughs> what's that how did that feel to you you know i uh, i pedaled it around for a couple minutes and i'm sure that within like a day of riding i would be going just as quick which isn't that quick or but... just as quick as him <laughs> uh, not so much i did do a lap with him it was mind-blowing dude like it's just i uh how fast the fast guys are oh people have it's it's another level like you know matt beer who works for us as an editor as well yeah matt is incredibly fast like he was national downhill champion i think he's won enduro things like and whenever i ride with matt i always think to myself like literally nobody can be faster and then i ride with a with like a current professional like jesse who's like winning ews races recently and it's like people it's not even it's almost a different sport isn't it? it's crazy what blows my mind is how fast the guys who are getting like top 100 are Oh yeah. Like you just like, you're just mind blowingly fast. I cannot conceive of going around that corner that fast. And it's like, well, you're yep. kind of struggling to get top 100 or like, like <laughs> yeah. the privateer, the original privateer with Adam Price. Like he's so fast. So he's fast. fast. He's he incredible. Was, yeah. Like, you know, he wasn't exactly getting top 10s and it's like, yeah. it's, it's how fast you can be and still not be like professional. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild. So I'm hoping to do a podcast with Jesse soon since he lives here in Squamish. So hopefully we will we will get together and talk about some enduro racing and bike setup and stuff. So uh, anyways, Seb, I'm almost positive that you didn't spend a bunch of time and money getting that physics degree to work in mountain bike media. So how did you end up doing this stuff? How did you end up in mountain bike media being a tech editor? 
Uh, so basically, I, I studied physics to kind of keep my options open because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I could kind of use it for engineering or or something else or, or something in academia, but had no idea. But then um, the week that I graduated, my my friend Tom from university, Tom Marvin, who works at Bike Radar, he posted on Facebook that there was a job going, so I applied for that. Um, ended up getting it, and that was that was that. So I, I massively landed on my feet there. Yeah. How long ago is that? You've been doing this for a while now, haven't you? Um, 2014, 2015 okay. I started. Yeah, yeah. yeah seven years. Um, was it, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy. How hard was it to get that degree in experimental physics? Is it is it like something that, did you have to work your ass off to do that? Or like, are you a, a pretty smart guy naturally and it sort of just came to you? Like, I'm, I'm asking because to me, and a degree in experimental physics it sounds mind-blowing, dude. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's no harder than any other degree if you, depends on what your aptitudes are. But like, I was yeah. always like quite good at maths and stuff. So I like, I would, if I tried to do an English degree or something, I would, I would, that would be impossible to me. So <laughs> people say, so physics has a sort of weird position on this pedestal. People think that f- physics must be the hardest subject. It's like, well, it just depends what you're good at, like. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was hard. Like I struggled a lot. I was, I was not the model student. I, I struggled a lot at times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Okay. Can you, can you just quickly sum up the double slit experiment for me? Oh man. <laughs> if you asked me seven, eight years ago, maybe. No, let's talk bikes. I'm only joking. Let's talk bikes. So if you're interested, there's a a YouTube channel called Veritasium. There's a really good explanation. Some of of those explanations I I wish I had seen when I was doing a degree. He is amazing at explaining things in a way that even I can understand. And I think that's why that channel gets like an incredible, incredible amount of views. And so that sort of brings me into into talking about how you do your reviews as well too. Like you have this interesting way of, it's very technical. You're explaining science, but like in those articles that you, that I went over at the start, I can read those and I understand what you're saying, but you're also using science to do it. It's pretty interesting. It's a, I don't see a lot of other people. I don't want to toot your horn too much, but (laughs) I don't see anybody else doing this. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. um, Well, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, I guess I, I have I've kind of tried to copy pe- people like Veritasium actually, who I who I watch. I, I absorb a whole lot of like educational YouTube and people who are really good at explaining like science communication mm-hmm. and um, maybe try and emulate that a little bit if possible. Yeah. So I, I guess yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm aiming for. Yeah. Hey. We should, we, we should probably talk about how tall you are. We're going to get back to physics stuff, but I want to talk about how tall you are and some of the challenges that's presented, uh, some of older bikes you've ridden and some new bikes you've ridden. So first, how, how tall are you, Seb? Um, six foot three or 191 centimeters. Okay. So, so I'm pretty tall. I think it's like 98th percentile. Yeah. Right? That's not like freak tall, but you're pretty tall. No, like there are, there are plenty of people who are taller than me, but I'm... Um, yeah. Yeah than average yeah so if we go back like five six years what sort of challenges did that present to you when testing bikes like i 
off the top of my head, I would assume everything would feel too short at the back at the front and so on and so forth. So how was that? Well, it didn't at first. It's kind of like what we were saying about 680 bars. I kind of yeah. thought bikes were, I, I didn't really think that much about sizing to start with because yeah. all the bikes were kind of too small. <laughs> yeah, you just, I rode, yeah. so I rode a Geometron in 2017 and it kind of took me a little while. I only had one day on it. So I kind of wasn't sure. I was like, this kind of makes a lot of sense, but also kind of not, not quite sure about it. And then later that year, I got a link to test. Yeah. And again, first ride, not sure about it. Second, third ride, I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. And then mm-hmm. getting back on bikes of the time that were like 10 centimeters shorter. And I was like, this is just worse you know it's kind of like if you got back on 680 yeah. mil bars now you'd be like how do you ride this yeah um, yeah so the main the main problem was like sounding like a broken record yeah. in like every review i was like well it'd be better if i had a steeper seat angle a slacker head angle and longer reach mm-hmm. and at the time a lot of people you kind of got a bit of pushback for that um because people were like oh can't you know all bikes can't be wrong right from dumbasses like me, Seth, but we'll get into that in a few minutes. <laughs> well, I think you're sort of on that school of thought as well. I mean, you wrote, you said you really liked that poll before it snapped. But... Yeah, I did really like that poll, but it took me a long time to get there. Um, I think it's it's it comes down to like the terrain you're riding. I was, where I was living at the time, the terrain wasn't exactly like super challenging, and we could get away with shorter bikes. Um, I mean, it was pretty fast, but like I just had that in my head. I think I wanted to be um, maybe a bit of the counter voice uh, to that, and I still think like I see people riding bikes that are too big for them. I I still think people sometimes go too far, and there's some there's some real drawbacks to that, especially if you're somebody who's not going super fast or pushing themselves i think you could there's some drawbacks there um but man i rode that short geometry steeper head angle train for far too long i'm happy to eat my hat over that one uh question for you though seb if i look back at that time when bikes were getting longer and seat angles were getting steeper and all of those things a lot of the time it was British people sort of leading that charge, whether it was designing the bikes or being more vocal about it. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. Um, don't know if it was, it definitely wasn't exclusively British people. No, um, no. People like Cesar, Rojo, but um, I don't know, maybe maybe it's the influence of one or two uh, kind of influence everyone else, like Chris Porter. He he. um uh, talks a lot with the journalists um, yeah. in the UK, who are a lot of them are based in that corner of the country, and then people like, um, I guess, well, there was me, as a Paul Aston, yep, um, and then obviously he was he it wasn't still as massively vocal, and then Dan Dan Milner as well at NBR, he he like I think yep. he he has been riding like XLs even recently. I think yeah. he's not hugely tall. I think he's maybe five ten ish. And yeah, I saw him to him, and he was like, "Yeah, I'm riding the XL." And I was like, oh, "Well, I'm riding the XL," and I'm like, "I'm, I'm ten centimeters taller than you, or something." Mm-hmm. Um, it could just be one or two people who who have got on that train and then influenced everyone else. I, I'm not sure, really. 
some some loudmouths in Britain. It's vocal minority. Yeah, I mean, you could call Chris Porter Steve Jones as well. That, yeah. Um, I guess he was never on the massively long bikes, but he was he was talking about uh, low bottom brackets and slack head angles, like modifying a specialized enduro back in the day to make it lower and slacker. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe it's just a coincidence. Yeah. What What are you riding now? Like in your head, at six foot three, if you could just pick your reach and your chainstay and your top tube and those things. Like, would you pick 470 mil chainstays or like, are you happy with a 450 or do you just want long as possible? Should things be even longer? Uh, no, definitely not. Um, I So I don't know if this will come out before or after, but I, I've done a test recently with a, a size large and the extra large Canyon Strive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, but I preferred the large and it's a 505 reach and the XL is like 530. Um so I'm surprised. So the large Strive has almost the same geometry as that large Evo Link I was riding in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I think that works really well for me. Um, but I've, I've ridden a few bikes that are longer. So I've ridden that XL Strive. I've ridden the XL Geometron. And I think I rode a double XL Geometron. And what's surprising is you can ride them. Like You can ride them around corners. You can get around turns. It, it, it's all fine. It's more about the like... Moving your weight forwards and backwards becomes really hard. It becomes hard to manual, and it becomes hard to get enough weight on the front tire in a flat turn. Mm -hmm. And they're the the limitations. Um, You actually want to be able to put your weight on the front wheel or the back wheel at will. And, yeah, with a a bike that's overly short, your your, your weight is too far over the front wheel when you don't want it to be. Yeah. with a with a bike that's too long, it's too much. It's 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 kind of too stable. You can't get your weight. Um, you can't adjust your weight distribution enough. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's what I find with those bikes. It's just harder. You have to constantly remind yourself to push push down on the grips to get enough weight on the front tire, and that's hard. Maybe that means we need longer chainstays um, to get more weight in the front tire, but you would have to go a lot longer. And nobody's really gone that long yet. And I also think there's diminishing returns with the longer front center. Like once you have enough stability, you have enough. And then adding more doesn't really seem to add much, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm 5'10 on a good day if I stand up straight. And every now and then I spend some time on like a 490-ish reach bike Hmm. with like a, you know, corresponding head angle and rear end and all those things like a a fairly big thing and i am always amazed at how much it feels like it slows down the terrain coming at me you know the bike is so much more stable and it just feels like that pitching sensation isn't there you know in a place like we're in squamish it's fucking steep everywhere man it feels so damn good but yeah then i go and ride it somewhere else and it's it's not not so much so I don't want to ruin that article. I don't want to spoil that article. But in brief, could you give me an outline why you preferred that shorter canyon over the longer canyon? Um, so it's it's mostly to do with um, front wheel grip and getting you know, like with with the with the XL. I was like playing around with the bar height and and kind of 
just the, the front end feels a bit more unwieldy and the front yeah. contact patch feels a bit further away. It's probably the most um, kind of best way to describe how it feels. Yeah. Um, are you slower on the long bike? Was this a time test? We did timing and the times are pretty much identical, like as close as yeah. they've been, uh, which, okay. is, which is useful because it, it kind of lets you know uh, that, you know, you're going at the same sort of speed. So then you can compare the feelings um, mm-hmm. in, in a way that makes sense. It's like when you said earlier, oh, it feels like the train is coming out slower. Are you slower? Well, you want to check that you're not actually just going slower. Um, <laughs> I probably was. <laughs> maybe, but, but it's good to check. And then that, I think that's what timing is, is useful for, is, is being like, right, am I actually going faster or slower? And then if you're going the same speed, then you can compare the feelings, the subjective things on a level playing field. Yeah, um, okay. And that's basically what the test was. It was like, well, I'm going the same speed, but I feel like I'm having to think less. And it feels more, yeah, more manageable on the large. This episode is sponsored by Yakima. Look in your rearview mirror. Is your bike still there? Are those bungee cords still holding? Zip ties failed yet? Yakima has got your back with a rack for all your snacks and packs to get you to that loamy single track. No whack. One bike, two bikes, three bikes, four. Bring your friends and even more. Check out our newest bike racks. Stage two and hang tight at yakima.com. Through July, get 20% off using promo code PINKBIKE at checkout. Why don't we talk about testing bikes for a minute? Yeah. Uh, just, just a real simple question for you. How do you test a bike? <laughs> um, we all have, I know it's not simple, but I think we all have the same basic outline, know how to properly test a bike, you know, ride it on familiar trails, back to back, like those sort of things. Um, but could you give me an overview of how you do it? Um, so I think like trying to nail down as many things that are like objective and measurable as possible. So like I'll usually measure the travel, you know, we can talk about it later. Usually it's Mm -hmm. exactly what they say it is or thereabouts, but occasionally it's not. So that's worth checking the the geometry, head angle, effective seat angle. It's worth measuring the effective seat angle at your actual pedaling height, uh, because that's often not what the spec table says. Yeah. Do you do that before you ride the bike? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's an argument for doing it afterwards and being like, you know, you ride it blind and then measure it. But yeah. To be honest, I like to just measure it while the bike's clean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like, fair. <laughs> you know, you weigh the bike when it has got mud all over it and stuff and before you start modifying it. Yeah. Um, because then the next thing you want to do is, is set it up. And obviously you like set the suspension as best you can. And you have kind of a bit of a routine for doing that. Setting up the cockpit, I kind of know how I like my brake levers to be. And like, I, I know like with a SRAM code, I want it this many millimeters from the grip and what have you. Um, but then sometimes there'll be something that holds it back. That's kind of personal preference. Like, oh, I don't like these grips or I don't like the tires that they're holding it back. Or like, I'll swap things out if they're holding it back. I have like a control cockpit, like uh, a rental barn stem that I'll just chuck on there if if I feel like I'm not comfortable with it, with the cockpit yeah. that comes with it. So I, I don't want sort of personal preference things to hold it back. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, once I'm really happy with the setup, I'll, I'll kind of got a few familiar test trails, a bit of a, like test loop that I've ridden loads of times. Um, and then maybe do some back-to-backs. Um with a, uh, a a comparable bike, if possible, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then, and then you sometimes modify other things. Like, um, like recently, I, I swapped the shock because I wasn't getting on with the original shock. So I talked to the company. There's often a lot of back and forth. Like the companies really appreciate if you <laughs> you say something negative up front straight away, and then they can be like, "Oh right, yeah, maybe try this," and then you try that, and it's like, "All right, that's better." Yeah. Or, yeah. or not sometimes. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting there that you mentioned that because there is a lot of back and forth with companies and it's, it's not, what it is, is trying to get to the bottom of these things. So like, mm-hmm. if you have a bike that's super linear, it's got a coil sprung shock on it, super linear. Well, for you to talk about that, you might need some perspective. So if you have an air sprung shock that fits, at least you could put that on and then you'll know if it's better so that when you talk about it, right? You could say in the review, you tested it. Um, so there is some back and forth there. Like it's not a matter of, but well, sometimes it is, but usually it's not a matter of this sucks. Like you also have to figure out, well, this isn't working quite right, but why I guess. Hey. Yeah. I think like, it's kind of hard to know where, you know, where our job is, whether it's like this bike is good or bad, you should buy it or not. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's the main part. But then the part of it is also like, actually trying to work out why and that's almost like that's more like r&d than yeah. sort of a product review um so but that's the part i find most interesting is is trying to work those things out but there's a limit yeah. to what you can do like you know you can't like sometimes you'll be like oh i think the frame is flexy or whatever but you can't actually test a stiffer frame to see if you're right um so the, that's what the R&D department uh, of the company needs, needs to work out. Yeah. Um, but you can do some things, like change the shock, change the shock tune, um, whatever else, and, and try and do do what experimenting you can to try and work out what affects what, and that's really interesting. Yeah. I've also found that nowadays, with everything, like, pretty pretty damn good eh like when was the last time you were on a bike that you were like Ugh, <laughs> that you really hated it probably was a long time ago i think um, um yeah i think kind of bikes a lot of it is just at the setup just yeah. sometimes you'll hate a bike but honestly once you get the setup right and maybe you do have to modify some things but you can usually make most bikes work with a little bit of of, yeah. of um experimentation but no, I, I definitely think some bikes like out of the box don't work very well or, or could be a lot better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a review coming up, which actually, actually the bike's fine, but out of the box, not so good. Like uh, yeah. I, I needed to change the shock. Do you do time testing when you do just normal bike reviews? Not usually. I, I don't think you can isolate the effect of the bike very yeah easily like there's too many like if i do 10 time runs of the same track i'll, I'll get quite a big spread of times yeah because i'm yeah. not you know i'm not a professional racer or anything like i i'm not putting down you know really consistent runs so like the difference that a bike makes is kind of neither here nor there i think um if you modify if you're changing something really big like like if you're going from like a caliber boss nut to uh <laughs> Don't talk shit about the boss knot. Hey, it's, it's an absolutely <laughs> solid bike. But you you could you could imagine a feature where you're like, right, how much time, how much faster can you go on a top spec yeah. bike than an entry level bike? 
yeah. then like yeah. there might be a big enough difference that you can time it and, and put some kind of a figure on it. If you're comparing like a Strive to an Enduro, it's like there's no way you, you can ride consistently enough to say one is faster than the other. Yeah. Well, uh, speak for yourself, Seb. <laughs> well, maybe you can. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I have a I have a question about facts versus feelings, Seb. So you're a, you're a very data driven guy. It sounds like much more so than than Casimir and I. Um, when I read your reviews, you're often like backing things up with something called facts, which who knows. <laughs> um, but how do you balance like what you're feeling? You know, when Casimir and I review a bike, it's often like it's just straight up like it's what we're feeling. You know, and we're translating that to the review. Uh, but I feel like you are more into the numbers. So I'm just curious, when you're putting a review together, how do you balance those things? Um, kind of try to include... I, I sort of think that there's there's the things that are really measurable and objective, but maybe don't really matter that much. Like, how much does the bike weigh? Watch this mm-hmm. angle, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then there are the, the things that people actually want to know. Like, is it fun to ride? Like, is it is it a good bike? Is it, it, you know, is it easy to ride fast? Um, mm-hmm. And those things are more subjective, but more important. Uh, so it's, you've kind of got to, you kind of got to have both, haven't you? And like, I think yeah. there's, yeah, you, you've got to include both. And I, and I think as the review goes on, like, I think towards the end of the review, I kind of get to like, I really enjoyed this bike or I didn't enjoy it that much, or I prefer this other bike for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of personal. Like another person might have a different experience, um, but if you include that as well as as much objective information as you can, I think that's the best you can do. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving on a bit, you wrote a completely misguided op-ed a while back, Seb. It was titled "The Case for Being Overbiked," which is the opposite of my op-ed from many years before. <laughs> you argued you argued that uh, most most people would be better served by riding a bike with more travel, which I, I'm not, I don't think I agree with, but can you explain yourself? I'm not sure I used those words exactly. Um, no, I'm paraphrasing but, um, incorrectly, probably. <laughs> basically, my argument was that you can, you might as well have more travel. Like you can always make a, a long travel bike stiffer and you can always use less travel than you have, but you can't use more yeah. travel than you have. So like, if you like the feeling of like, if you like the feeling of a 120 mil bike, it's probably because the suspension is stiff. And so when you push into a corner, it pushes back. But you could do that with a 180 mil bike. You would just have more travel in reserve for like, if you accidentally ride off a cliff or something, (laughs) or or you could never use it in your whole life. That's fine. Like you don't use it. And I was like, okay, the the 120 mil bike probably weighs less. But like the difference in weight between like, a reactor, a nuke proof reactor frame and a pike fork and like a nuke proof giga frame and a zeb fork. The difference in weight is like a water bottle. Well, you picked the two heaviest ones. <laughs> and the giga, the reactor is not that heavy, is it? I mean, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's just an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but like, it's not as if the weight is necessarily that different. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the main difference between those two bikes in terms of like, responsiveness and climbing uh, speed will be the tires. So yep. why don't you just have a long travel bike and two sets of tires? 
is my it's my hypothesis. And I, I yep. want to do a test to, to find out if if that kind of checks out. What it feels very subjective, though. Like, how would you? I assume you would be talking about what you'd want to know is like just is the bike still fun? How would you test something like this? Well, no, I, I'd want to measure like climbing speed, like how much slower is a long travel bike than a short travel bike? Yeah. Uh, uphill, how much of that difference goes away when you put the same tires on them? Mm-hmm. And then how do they compare descending? Like, could you have a long travel bike with fast rolling tires that was faster uphill and faster downhill than a short travel bike with slow rolling tires? I, yeah. I, I, I suspect that you could. But yeah, I don't know. No. I feel like you could. Can I, I want to make a counterpoint here. Go on. So when, let's say you're out for a ride. It's in my experience, maybe yours. When I look back at a really fun ride, it's it's not because, you know, I did some, you know, one big jump or, or one super gnarly section. It's usually it's like it's sliding around the corner, you know, or. Uh, it's those little moments on the trail that are fun and they usually come from finding that edge of traction mm-hmm. and being on that edge of traction and, and you know, that, that feet up slide through the corner that you got by accident and you get it like once every month or something like that. And it's just absolutely great. Yeah, I feel like for me, those moments, those exciting moments, they happen more when I'm on a bike that is less forgiving I'm not talking like a full-on XC race bike. Those are dumb. But like a like a maybe a steeper trail bike that has, you know, 2.35 trail bike tires on it. You're going to get those experiences way more often than you would get on a 170 or a 180 with massive ass guys and 40% sag. And that's where I get my enjoyment from is those little slides through the corners and the little rollers and the pumps. What what would you say to that? I, I kind of agree with you, and I mm-hmm. think I, I prefer riding in the wet for the same reason because I I, sli- oh, yeah. I slide more and I crash at lower speeds. Yeah. Um, but I would rather get that if I wanted to have more. If I wanted to be sliding more, I would put faster rolling tires on. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily have less travel because okay. um, a faster rolling tire will make you much faster on the flat and climbing having less travel doesn't necessarily make you go any faster uphill. Um, um, but, but you get more grip and more control when you're going downhill. So like having more travel seems like a really good deal in terms of like climbing to descending performance. Whereas yeah. like having a stickier tire is going to really compromise going uphill. And there's no way, there's no way around that. Whereas you yeah. can design a long travel bike to pedal really well. And so, I feel like that's a good trade-off. Yeah. Would you put ass guys on your trail bike set? Like, are you, do you want just all of the traction so you can go as fast as possible or something a little lighter duty? Um, personal preference. I, I would have like an ass guy or a, or a magic Mary on the front most of the time, yeah. but I wouldn't have one on the rear unless I've got an uplift. I would have something like a DHR2 or equivalent. Um, mm-hmm. And I tend not to go for the heaviest casing. Like if I can get away with, maybe it's because I get stuff for free. (laughs) If I can have like a casing with an insert. So it's faster rolling, but you, you know, you have just, you have enough puncture protection. It's not super rocky around here. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so an EXO or an EXO Plus, maybe with a casing on the rear, seems to be just about enough. And it's a bit lighter, it's a bit faster rolling, so you can get to the top quicker. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to your review where you test a long travel bike with XC tires and you lock it out, which sort of brings us to our next question, because you wrote a thing testing the effectiveness of a lockout on an enduro bike. I thought it was super interesting. Uh, it proved there's definitely a difference, but the difference is pretty pretty small. Um, so I always go on about how bikes would have been better if the shock lockout was never invented, because it would have forced us to... It would have forced smarter people to come up with more efficient suspension designs. Like if there was never any such thing as a lockout, I would like to think that somebody using physics, Seb, would have come up with some sort of design that was active and independent and like all those things. Am I talking out my ass? Is that just not, that's not possible, I guess, eh? I think it depends on whether or not you think that pedal kickback matters. Mm-hmm. Because if you, if you want to make a bike pedal well, you've got to have a significant amount of anti-squat, uh, which basically stops the suspension bobbing using the chain tension uh, of the suspension. Uh, the downside to doing that, according to some people, is that you get pedal kickback where the cranks rotate where the suspension compresses. I think that's basically not a thing. doesn't matter in the real world. And so you might as well have the anti-squat levels that give you the best pedaling performance wait 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 wait. but i'm sure i felt it like a good pedaling bike when i'm riding through rough stuff Mm. and and i'm standing up loading the pedals you're telling me that the chain forces aren't affecting the suspension or what are you saying well if you're going above a certain speed like you you will definitely feel it if you like if you ride off like a loading bay or a drop at slow speed, or sometimes even if you do a bunny hop at slow speed, when you land, you'll feel the cranks rotate backwards. But once you're above, depends on the bike, but if you're above like walking pace, um, it's almost impossible for that to happen because the wheel just rotates forwards and that stops the cranks from rotating backwards. And, and so when people talk about pedal kickback, as they're like going along a rock garden at high speed, that's not pedal kickback. That's something else. If, if you're getting pedal kickback at low speed, like, like, you know, walking pace, fair enough. But I think on the trail, that's rarely, a, if ever, an issue. Um, and, and the other thing about anti-squat is that you get more anti-squat with, with we're ignoring bike with the idlers for now. That's my next question. Yeah. With a conventional bike, you get more anti-squat wall by basically giving it a more rearward axle path. That means that the axle and the cassette moves further away from the bottom bracket as the suspension compresses, which gives you more pedal kickback. But if we assume that pedal kickback isn't really an issue, then Mm -hmm. you get more anti-squat, which means that it pedals better, climbs better, and you get a more rearward axle path, which at least in some cases, will make it absorb bumps better. So you, like, I think in most situations, it's kind of a win-win-win. You can have better pedaling, better bump absorption. Um, yeah, well, win-win with with those with, with a with a higher anti-squat bike to to it within limits. And so that kind of means you don't necessarily need a lockout. So why do these high pivot bikes have? 
have idlers if there's if the pedal kickback doesn't matter well yeah i said within limits like <laughs> if you have too much anti-squat it will start to pedal worse yeah so if you if you if you got rid of an idler on like a forbidden and rooted the straight chain straight to the cassette like it would like want to top out every time you pedaled it, it yep. would pedal terribly and yeah at, at those extremes you probably would get pedal kickback that was noticeable at, at normal speeds um yeah but with a normal bike you know if you're comparing like a santa cruz or or whatever that has a reasonable amount of anti-squat i really don't think that the uh, pedal kickback is a huge issue um and so yeah there are bikes there which pedal well enough that you don't really need uh, a lockout um and, and i don't think that the bump absorption suffers terribly as a result um but as I kind of demonstrated in that test, like that test was of bikes that pedal very well, that have high ND squat. And there was still a very small advantage to having the lockout, um, at least in that test. It adds up though, doesn't it? Like that was a very short distance. So if you, if you stretch that out over a day of Enduro racing, would you be using a lockout on transfer stages? Yeah, so so the thing to say about that test, which I, I didn't kind of go into in the article, was that it's kind of yeah, it, it's a it's a it's kind of a a minimum advantage. So so I measured like I can't remember like zero point seven percent faster with the lockout. There's obviously a huge, you know, don't don't take that number too seriously. But there's a very I think there's a very small advantage with having the lockout with those bikes. But what I was doing was measuring the power at the crank at 300 watts and measuring how fast it was going. There is an argument that with without a lockout, so when you have the bike bobbing under power, it actually takes more physiological effort to produce that 300 watts. And I wasn't measuring that. I was just measuring the power output of the crank and how fast oh. was it going. And yeah, there was yeah. still a very small difference. And you actually got the same result in, there's a couple of bikes that you did an efficiency test on with mm -hmm. with a live valve. Yep. And in both cases, they were faster with live valve at 300 watts of the crank, right? Yeah, yeah. They were, they were marginally faster with live valve activated. It was like three seconds over two, two and a half minutes, if I remember correctly, something like that. Okay, yeah. So similar sort of maybe 1% kind of yep. number. But that's um, but the actual advantage might be bigger than that because it in some cases I think especially if you're standing up and pedaling it will take more effort from your body to produce the 300 watts of the crank in the first place. Yeah, and the reason for that basically is that the bottom bracket if you're if you're out of the saddle pedaling the bottom bracket is moving up and down relative to your like to your pelvis. So, so you're, you're having to push the cranks not only around in a circle, but also up and down relative to you. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes extra energy, but you're not getting any more power at the crank. So there may be this other layer of inefficiency where you're producing, you're, you're producing the same power at the crank, but doing more work with your body. And I think, I think that's particularly true when you're standing up. And that's why I did the test sitting down, because when you're sitting down on the saddle, your pelvis and the bottom bracket is a fixed distance. 
from one another. And so I don't think you're getting as much of that additional physiological effort to do 300 watts with the lockout on or off. It's, it's, I think it should be the same. And so all of the difference then is, I think, downstream of the crank. So if you're producing 300 watts uh, at the crank, you're, you're measuring how much slower you go due to the sort of compression of the suspension every time your, your pedals are level. You produce a, a peak in torque when your pedals are at three o'clock. Mm -hmm. So that kind of shoves you forwards from the rear axle kind of periodically. And, and when that when you get that shove forwards, if you have the lockout off, your weight kind of rocks backwards a little bit and then rebounds forwards as, as the suspension extends. And, and that is producing some loss of energy that's downstream of the crank and downstream of the axle. Whereas I think there's, especially if you're st stood up, there's an additional loss of energy that's upstream of the crank and you're not measuring that. And so the point of all this is that, you know, 0.7%, 1% that both of us have measured, that's, um, that's an inefficiency that's downstream of the crank, but there might be more efficiency, up, more inefficiency upstream of the crank that we're not measuring. And to measure that, you would need like uh, one of those uh, things that you breathe into, and then it measures the carbon dioxide that you breathe out and the oxygen you breathe in. Um, you would need to do that. And that's, uh, yeah, not easy. Um, uh, so if someone did it as part of like a PhD uh, with bike radar. They did like 26, 27 and a half, 29. And they had this apparatus that they carried on their back and they could measure the gas exchange and work out how much effort they were putting in uh, on a cross-country course. Uh, super interesting uh, way of testing. Mm -hmm. um, that would be the only way to measure the true extent of the effect of using a lockout. Um, what we are measuring is a small part, is a part of that, is not the whole story. So if there's any difference at all, then, you know, it, the, the, we know that the real difference will be bigger, especially if you're out of the saddle. And, and, the, and that privateer I was testing on in the Geometron, both of them have more than 100% anti-squat, like 110, 120%. So in theory, both of them should pedal really well. And, you know, subjectively, I would say they do. Um, there are bikes with well under 100% anti-squat, which pedal much worse. And so, so the point of that test was to be a sort of best case scenario for the for not having a lockout. Mm -hmm. And there was still a measurable advantage to using a lockout. Um, I mean, the statistics are pretty ropey. Like I would need to like do way more runs to be sure. But They underline the story I, here, what you're trying to get across though. Yeah, I, I think there was a difference, especially if you also consider the live valve bikes that you've tested. Is sort of all. If you take it all together, it sort of suggests yeah, yeah. there is a slight advantage between the crank and the the time taken to do a climb. But yeah. my point is that's the minimum. That there could be other efficient inefficiencies on top of that. So the advantage to using a lockout could be slightly more than one percent, um, especially if you're out of the saddle. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I think you know, don't be ashamed to use your lockout. I think. Um, if the if the terrain is smooth, you might as well. I love that you work for us, you big nerd. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> it balances out Casmer and I. <laughs> no, great. you guys are smart. I'm, I'm just... <laughs> no, but you can you can 
you can explain it in a way and sort of do these tests in a little bit more scientific way that I think everybody appreciates. You know, it's it's easy for me or Cass to say one thing, but uh, it's neat that you go out and you can do these things. Um, the, the, the crazy thing is, like, the, the efficiency test that you've done, I think if you take them all together, they're quite, really quite interesting. It, yeah. It's kind of funny that, like, as soon as you start putting a number on something, people feel that they have the right to, like, really jump down the throat of you and be like, oh, it's this and this and this. And it's like, yeah, sure. But like normally you're not even trying to measure these things. You, you, you can say in a bike review, oh, this bike climbs terribly. Nobody gives you shit for it. You, you, put yeah. a me- you measure it and you put a number on it. You actually like control your power, measure the difference, measure the time. And then people are like, no, that's not, that's, you know, that's not a thing. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> actually, that's way better than nothing. Like, at least you're yeah. power and measuring accurately how long it takes to do the same course and doing the same thing with a bunch of bikes. Like, that's way better than just guessing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we always use the same, the same climb. And remember that one time we brought the donut out, which has like a negative 100% anti squat. And it was, I mean, it had some meaty tires on it too that we didn't change, but mm. it, it was also, like a minute behind or 45 seconds behind or something over like a two and a half minute climb. And you could visually see the bike like as I'm battling. It's terrible. Yeah. So did you, I think in the video you actually said it feels like harder work. Yeah. It was way harder work. Yeah. But isn't that interesting because you're doing 300 Watts either way. Exactly. So it should be be the same. It's not. I mean, I know it takes longer, so it will be harder, but like, it sounded like it was harder, like per minute. Yeah, I I would argue. I think a lot of it came down to the body position over that bike, and mentally, I could look down, like visually, I could look down, and I could also feel the damn thing moving. And I think mentally, that made me like just inside be like, oh, all my watts are being wasted. Yeah, you know, like some like negative placebo going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, let's. You brought up live valve there. Let's talk for a minute about electronic suspension. Have you used flight attendant yet? I haven't actually. I used um, live valve version one quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's been a while. They've improved it since then. But what is your general take on this sort of pedal assisted electronic stuff? Um. Well, as I was saying earlier, I think that giving a bike a lot of anti squat is a really good solution Mm -hmm. it's foolproof it's always on um basically you turn it on by pedaling yeah and and as far as i'm concerned it doesn't really affect the suspension when you're not pedaling um but when you are pedaling it it stops it bobbing like it's and the harder you pedal the harder it resists pedal bob and and that's Mm -hmm. it's kind of a great solution i think a lot of the live valve uh, and flight attendant proponents will be the people who think, and they may be right. I may be wrong about this. Careful what you say. That's me. <laughs> they may they may be of the opinion that that you know pedal kickback really does matter. In which case, yeah. you could design a bike with low pedal kickback, low anti squat, that still pedaled well with live valve or, or flight attendant, and that sounds great. But I'm not convinced that that giving a bike lots of anti-squat is a, is a problem. Yeah. Um, I'm not convinced either because I tend to like those bikes. I've always liked those bikes with a fair bit of anti-squat, but 
I also rode like a 170 or a 180 thing with flight attendant on it. And I was blown away by how still the bike was on the climbs. Like the thing, the suspension did not move, you know, and it still felt like it had traction, you know, enduro bikes mm-hmm. can be amazing climbers because of the traction they give you. Um, but yeah, I, I would love for you to try some flight attendant over there, Seb. Yeah, I really would like to. I mean, I mean, you know, I should be asking you because you've ridden, you've ridden the flight attendant. Um, and that was on yeah. the specialized enduro, right? Yeah, that was on the enduro and it was only one brief ride. And then I did another ride on it afterwards. It was a little bit bigger, but um, it, I felt like it added a crazy amount of versatility to the bike to, I think the enduro for enduro bikes is, you know, this was a couple of years ago. It was kind of, it's a reasonably well-rounded bike to begin with. Um, but I felt zero drawbacks on the descent and it only made the bike a better climber. The drawback that I, the biggest drawback that I could come up with was listening every now and then I heard the little motor go <clears throat> barely, you know, but other than that, I was blown away by the stuff. Yeah. I mean, that kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier about you might as well have more travel. Yeah. It didn't make yeah. you think that you might as well have more travel. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, hey, I have a, I have a question about forks, lowering yeah. forks. Um, this is a question that I've seen people ask for years and years and years, and I've never really got a straight answer that I believe. Seb, how come if I'm on like, if I'm riding a bike, I mean, there's not a ton of forks out there with, with travel that you can lower with a dial anymore, but you remember there used to be a ton of them. You take your fork from 160 down to 140, you know, it's supposed to be a better climber. How come the bike feels like it takes more effort to pedal when my fork is lower? Do you think it does? I don't know if it actually does, but that is definitely something that I've heard a ton of people say. I've read it in lots of places. So you're climbing up a gravel road, your fork's full extension, you lower it. It feels like I need to apply more power to go the same speed. Am I am I being crazy? I don't know. People in the comments are going to be like, this guy's lost his marbles. I mean, it's not something I've heard of or thought about before. Mm-hmm. The only thing I could think of, well, two things. One is that by the time you've lowered your fork, you've probably taken take your foot off the gas and you've slowed down a bit. So, you, yeah. so temporarily, you'll need to provide more power to get back up to speed. The only other thing I can think of is it might put a little bit more weight on your front tire, and your front tire is generally slower rolling, so a more um, co- higher coefficient of rolling resistance. So the more mm-hmm. weight you have in the front tire, the slower. But that seems like a very minor effect. Yeah. This is one of those mental things I would imagine. Is it is it because it's something you do just before you start a really steep climb? <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> you know how like people always turn to homeopathy like just as they're about to get better anyway. Is it a bit yeah. like the opposite of that? Like you only do it hey, when dude. You do a really steep climb. <laughs> I always bring up my crystals the second I feel an illness coming on, okay? So and it helps. I swear it helps. Well, you're still alive, so it must do. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I mean that used to be something that I used to see all the time when forks were lowered. Forks could be lowered, but nowadays people don't really do that anymore. So I don't think it's much of a concern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about suspension travel. Speaking of having less travel, uh, you wrote an article that I really liked 
about bikes not having the amount of suspension travel they claim to offer. It sounds like it's only a few millimeters here or there for most bikes, but that's not always the case. So for people listening that haven't read those articles, I just want to read out a couple quotes from Seb um, from, from that article there. It says, first one says, two of the first bikes I measured were the 2019 Specialized Enduro and the Scott Ransom. The Enduro had a claimed 160 millimeters of travel, but my test bike with its Fox DPX2 shock was delivering just 148. That's a big difference. The other quote, one brand told me off the record they once had a bike measure up at 158 millimeters of travel, but they sold it as 150 millimeters because that's what the customers wanted. Sab, that is wild. That's wild. Were you surprised to find those big differences? Um, yeah, in the case of the Enduro, I think I think it was to do with the shock rather than the linkage. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the other part of the quote was that the Scott Ransom was delivering more than advertised. Yeah, like one seven. I can't remember one seven five or something. And I yeah. think so. I should I say uh, like we said at the start that like the UK journalists like we tend to talk to each other a lot, and Alan Muldoon was like, I'll be measuring travel. A lot of them are way less than they say they are. You should do it too. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. So he he said that the the new Specialized Enduro has more travel than claimed, and so does the Ransom. So so they're like 170-something travel. They're like really big travel. If it has more travel than claimed, as a, like going back to a previous conversation, that sounds fine to me. Like, uh, <laughs> But if it has less than claimed, that's... Probably not ideal. How does that happen, though? I think there are a lot of reasons. I think I think the main one is to do with shocks. Um, so shocks, it's actually quite hard to measure travel because it sort of depends what you what you mean by the travel. Because most shocks will have a a pneumatic top out, so they will never actually fully extend. Like the the air pressure in the positive and the negative equalizes the forces at some point which isn't like a really hard top out. It's like somewhere slightly in. And then like, even if you have a bit more grease in the negative, like it will like extend slightly less than maybe not by much, but like basically the, the, the top out, so the fully extended position of the shock isn't like that kind of well defined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Seb, a few millimeters there or even one millimeter there adds up to a whole lot more at the axle, doesn't it? Yeah, sure. Like at the start of the travel, you typically got like three to one leverage ratio. So if it's like underextending by a millimeter, that's three millimeters less travel. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is uh, bottom out bumpers. So like even in air shocks, like the new X2 has quite a big bottom out bumper. So you can kind of never fully compress it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the reason I don't want to go too hard on bikes that are a few millimeters short on travel is because like both of those things are a good thing. Like you don't want your bike bottoming out with a, a sudden stop and you don't want it topping out either. Like you want it to like be very, very difficult to get to those extremes or with a kind of top out, uh, a bomber bumper and a pneumatic or physical top out bumper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of worth knowing that those two things sort of reduce your travel slightly. So maybe a bike should be designed to have a bit more travel to take account of the fact that um, the bottom-out bumper will slightly reduce the amount of usable travel. 
Um, but th those things only account for a few millimeters. So like if a bike is like five mil short of travel, it's probably something to do with that. In the case of that Enduro, that was like 12 mil difference. It's like, okay, something else is going on there. And yeah, when bikes are over delivering on travel, that's, they're probably designed to. Um, yeah. Probably the engineers know like they've done the CAD analysis. They would have known from the start how much travel it will have. Um, but maybe, you know, that's what they want. Like to provide 160 millimeters exactly of travel, because that's the sort of category of bike that they're aiming at actually is, is a bit of a, it's, it's not really necessary to have that as a very precise uh, requirement of the bike. Like you, you've got so many different parameters, like you're trying to fit the shock around water bottles because that's obviously what is most important to people. And then like, you've got to make the, the structure, like the structural considerations and all those things, like trying to do all that whilst also being like, Oh, it can't have one five, nine mil of travel or one six one. It's like, <laughs> No, you're just going to be like, right, we're going to tuck the shot behind here. We're going to put the water bottle there. We're going to make this link a bit bigger so that it doesn't break. And then, yeah. oh, yeah, we've gained five millimeters of travel. Oh, well, like we're not going to yeah. lose sleep over that. I, I imagine that's how it goes. But with that Enduro, I mean, in my mind, it's that's not correct. Like that's not yeah, right. So, so that shot wasn't fully <laughs> extending. Like the full... Oh, okay. It wasn't what it should have been. So it was a technical issue with that specific shock, but other Enduros yeah. probably have the right amount of travel is what we're getting at? I can only, like, we can always only test the bike yeah. we have. Yeah. But, but, like, the reason it's useful really is to sort of compare, kind of like the timing, to compare that measurement to what you're feeling on the trail. Like, in that case, I went to ride some really fast, rough stuff at Bike Park Wales, like, super like really just battering through rocks and the ransom was amazing specialized really not so much and like the fact that instead of having a 10 mil difference in travel they actually had like uh 25 huge mil difference in huge. travel it's like okay that that really uh tallies with the fact that i was feeling bounced around much more on the specialized well, if it has 25 mil less travel, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So so if you can kind of compare the two things together, you know, would a different example with a different shock have more travel? You know, quite possibly, but, you know, we can only really speculate yeah. on that. Like that yeah. was the shock that my bike came with and that's what I had to review. Yeah. Uh, we talked about high pivots earlier. That's another thing to mention with this talk about advertised travel. Some brands... They talk about vertical travel. Some brands like measure the wheel path. Uh, I know Yeti talks about uh, vertical travel, like in relation to the fork. Like such and such bike has X amount of travel, but you know it feels like this sometimes. Um, and they try to match it with the fork. So, yeah, it is. It is this thing that's like not really set in stone so much, but it's also how we categorize these bikes in a way. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with most bikes, it doesn't really matter, like the how you measure it, um, because the the axle path is pretty much vertical with most bikes. With a really high pivot bike like the Forbidden or or Norca Range, there's mm -hmm. so much rearward movement that yeah, you you'll get quite a different number if you measure this sort of diagonal point to point versus the vertical travel. 
Yeah. And, and yeah. with forks, it's really significant. Like you have a 63 degree head angle with a 170 fork, you'll get, I think it's about 152 mil of vertical travel. Mm-hmm. So the, the head angle is actually reducing the vertical travel quite a lot. Mm-hmm. That's why you'll see a lot of like 150 bikes with 170 forks and and the like. So so at bottom out, they will be at the same, they'll have the same angles because you have about the same amount of vertical travel front and rear. Interesting, yeah. And there's, you know, with the, with the high pivot bikes, there's like definitely a case for measuring it differently. Um, like, but the, the vertical travel and the sort of rearwards travel sort of do different jobs. Like you could imagine a bike with only rearwards travel. So mm-hmm. when you hit a bump, like the wheel would sort of move backwards relative to the frame until, until it had enough force to like get up and over. And that would, that would like, that would slow down. Um, mm-hmm. That would give the wheel more time to get up and over the bump. It would also mean that you were in contact with the bump for longer, but the, the frame would still have to move up and down by the same amount as a rigid bike. It would just do it more slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the, fr- the, the rearwards and forwards and, and vertical components of the travel do different jobs. So like putting it into one number, like the diagonal travel is, is a bit simplistic. Like maybe we should be talking about like, oh, this bike has this much vertical travel and this much rearward travel. I, I think that's a, a better way to do it with, with those high pivot bikes. We need to start talking about travel envelopes like we did. Do you remember the Cannondale Gemini that had the two shocks and the wheel could actually move like in a yeah. in a vertical in a like a rectangle area, you know? That's such a cool idea. Like it's before my it time, is. but like it just seems like a really good idea to me. Yeah. Like, if you hit a big square edge bump, the wheel will react to that and move more backwards. Yep. Uh, At any point in the travel. What's that? At, at different points in the travel, it can move differently depending on what it needs to do, you know? Did you ever ride a bike like that? No, God, no. I would have loved to try that thing, though. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are, like, motorcycle designs. Like, there's a motorcycle fork, which uses, like, a telescopic on a, yep. I think it's a Hossack link. So it has two different types of suspension that move in different planes. And so you yeah. can get a similar sort of envelope. But it's not like mainstream. No, and it's a product that someone's complicated, ultra complicated, and yeah, yeah. But could be neat. Hey, you're British and you like enduro bikes, so we have to talk gearboxes. I assume you love them and you hate the derailleur. Is that true? No, I mean if you (laughs) you have to ride more than once, you realize that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. What? (laughs) Let's talk gearboxes just for a minute. Uh, Give me, give me the negatives first, and then we'll finish with the positives. Uh, so weight is the most obvious one. Um, having to have a specific frame is not necessarily a problem. Like e-bikes are the same. They have to, mm-hmm. to be designed around the motor. The biggest one for me is drag. Yeah. Well, there are two. There, there's the drag, which is quite significant. Um, and there's the shifting, like not being able to shift under load. Like mm-hmm. you, you, I really miss that um, more than you would think. Like you're pedaling towards a jump. And you're like, oh, just keep sprinting, but change up again. And you're like, oh, no, I can't. Oh, no, I can't. Yeah. Um, at least then you have an excuse for casing the jump. Yeah, right. Um, but, yeah, like, there's certain, like if you're just going up a fire road and then going down like a downhill track all day, that's fine. But it's on the tracks that are a bit more in between where you've got to, like, accelerate out of corners and stuff. 
Yeah. The promise is there. Like the idea is amazing. The idea is amazing. Why haven't we seen a derailleur in a can? It seems like the least amount of um, complication maybe and the least amount of friction. Yeah. I think you'd still have more friction than a conventional external derailleur Mm -hmm. because you've got like the whole mechanism and then you have a chain, a drive chain as well. Yeah. Uh, whereas like, it's kind of like when you think about it, it's a really neat solution, the derailleur, external derailleur, because like the chain transmits the power, but it also shifts the gears. Like it's quite yeah. an elegant solution in a way. Super efficient too. Efficient, Most efficient yeah, way to do it with the chain. Yep. Yeah. And um, yeah, we'll see what Shimano's patent does there, derailleur in a box solution, but yeah, I'm not holding my breath. I, I think too heavy, too specific, yeah. too expensive, too complicated. Yeah. What'd you think of the Supra drivetrain? It's kind of neat, eh? I think that's a good idea. Like we've, we've given, we've done a lot of content on that for something that doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we have. <laughs> we've written a lot of articles uh, about a product that, you know, we haven't even, well, Matt Beer had a quick ride on it around the car park, but yeah. basically it doesn't exist. And it's only ever for high pivot bikes. Like it will only work for high pivots. Yeah. So it's not going to replace, I don't think SRAM and Shimano are, you know, too worried about the future. But I think like I can see it working. It Like it's not going to take over, but I think it will, I think it could have its niche. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, it seems like a really good idea to me. Yeah. All right, Seb, before I let you go, I think people are always interested in what we're testing and what we prefer as far as bike designs and suspension is concerned. So if we're talking enduro bikes, who is making something that impresses you and, and why right now? Um, it's no secret I, I enjoyed the Canyon's Drive. Uh, I still have that. I asked if I could keep it on a bit longer, see how the longevity of the shapeshifter holds up. Yeah. Is that a redesigned shapeshifter? It's the same as the old one. So, oh. yeah, it should be fine. Yeah. Um, more to, like, experiment with um, experiment with settings and, you know, the, the head angle, the, sorry, the reach adjustment they've got. Yeah. Um, and to kind of play around with. And, yeah, just to ride it. I, I did a race on it recently. So it's kind of nice to have a bike that I like to just do races on or to just ride at the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've also got the, the Atherton Enduro bike. Oh shit. I want that. Yeah, I mean What do you think? Seems good so far. I've not spent nearly as much time on it. But mm-hmm. yeah, it seems good. It's a bit steeper. It's got like sixty five head angle for the flatter stuff. Like anything that's not super steep. Absolutely great. There are a couple of times when you like really steep shoot into like a big hole or a big compression where it, I don't know, I think you can notice not quite yeah. the steering isn't quite as stable. Some of these yeah. slacker bikes, but no, it seems solid so far. Like they're quite impressed with it. Does the frame feel different with those with those lugs, the titanium lugs and the carbon tubes? Do you notice anything there? Does it feel stiffer or maybe not as stiff or different in any way? I don't think so. Um, no. Stiffness is really hard to... Yeah. A lot of people mention stiffness in like every review. Like, oh, this bike. Really Dude, cool. I don't or give a bike's... shit about that stuff. I'm like, like, as long as my rear wheel stays behind me, I don't give a crap. <laughs> unless, I mean, unless we're talking about like old cheap bikes. Yeah. They were like QR and, and really bendy. 
yeah. most of the time it's like i don't think i notice at least yeah. i've never tested it in isolation to know um to know if what i'm feeling is flex right uh like it, it, it's like we were saying earlier like we can't always do the r d job and like test everything in isolation but i've never ridden a bike and been like well recently i've not ridden a high-end bike and been like oh this is too flexy too stiff it just it's like you've got so much suspension travel and, and the tire and the tire deformation and things it's like um yeah. i'm not sure i can really say too much as long as it's like within a certain acceptable window which i think yeah. is quite wide I don't think I can say anything about the stiffness at this point, but like some of my favorite bikes have been super flexy, you know, like what? Oh, like old trail bikes from years ago. And did you ride the I, SB5? Was it not? Is it the SB575? Uh, uh, the one to with be the carbon, with the uh, Yeti with the carbon stays. Oh, geez, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure to be honest, but I know I've ridden some like underbuilt stuff we're talking you know four five six seven years ago mm. and i remember loving those bikes just loving them <laughs> and mm. i don't know you know I'm, I'm again i'm not a big guy a lot of people in the comments they always want us to have bigger heavier dudes testing bikes and that's definitely a, a real thing for sure so um but yeah personally flex frame flex not so much no uh suspension question for you Who's making forks that you love right now? If you're if you're going to go race in EWS, what frame are you going to use and what fork are you going to put on it? So another thing that I'm in is in the pipeline is I want to do another uh, compare the 38 Fox 38 to the new Zeb. Mm-hmm. So I've been running the new Zeb a little bit. Um, Buttercups, what do you yeah, think? It's it's hard to say at the moment. Um, I wasn't like blown away by it. To start with, okay. it wasn't like, yeah, I think it'll be close with the Fox yeah. 38. Um, Fox is so good with those Grip 2 dampers, eh? I so love those things. I did a test with the old Zeb, and I much prefer the 38. And I did yeah. a test with the Olin's 38mm chassis fork, and I much prefer the 38. Really? Over the Olin's? Yeah. Why? And I've done loads of tests. I've, I've, done, I've tested loads of them. Well, I've ridden loads of them on loads of different bikes. They're really common on enduro bikes now and e-bikes. They've all been great. Like it's, yeah. it's um, yeah, really sensitive at the start of the stroke, which I, I think is something I'm really sensitive to. Like the the spring rate at the start of the travel is really important to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the 38 does that better than anything else I've tested so far. But I think the new Zeb is, is um, yeah, is is in that ballpark. So I, I don't want to say any more than that. Like, we'll have to do some back to backs and and maybe get some telemetry on it and so some data acquisition and see. That sounds interesting. Yeah, let's a couple more questions about preferences. Do you have a brake preference and why? I I complain a lot about brakes, Seb. I think mountain bike brakes are generally garbage. You know, like. I, it's uh, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, how- it's insane. Like we see so many different bikes, and the inconsistencies across every single brand is mind-boggling. Within how crappy brands, they could be! Like within, you could have two sets of codes. One feels yeah. and one feels shit. Oh yeah, and that applies to TRP. It applies to Shimano. It applies to everybody. It's crazy. What's going on? 
Yeah. Yeah, it's not acceptable, is it? It's like the, no. the brakes need to work really well all the time. Yeah. Like a new bike should not have wandering bike point. It shouldn't need a bleed. I mean, sure, no. the, the brake pads need bedded in. Fair enough. Yeah. But like, it's just totally unacceptable. And like, whether it's the frame manufacturer's fault for like not bleeding it properly after they've rooted it through the frame yep. or the brake manufacturer's fault, it's like, it doesn't matter. Like either way, it's not. You yeah. wouldn't set that from a car. No. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's pretty much all the brands like Shimano. Shimano seem to be getting better. Um, I've less wandering bite points this year. I've, yeah. I feel like, but it wasn't what is going on when they updated the the brakes with the new lever design? Um, I thought there would be like a step change improvement, and there kind of wasn't. It's been more of like a gradual improvement over the years. It's like they're still not yeah. perfect. Well, but what's weird is they never used to do that. They never used to have wandering bite points. And Back then the day, all of a sudden, one year, boom. Yeah. All these brakes had wandering bite points. And I think what the crazy thing is too is I I look at other mountain bike media and I don't see anybody complaining about this. I don't see it out there. People moaning about these wandering bite points and inconsistencies and almost every review that I personally read. I think you're looking at the wrong media. Like yeah, I, I guess so. And um, Bike Radar and UK, they've been talking about it for a long time. Good, 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 good. Yeah, um, it's and to be fair, I, some of them are better than others. Yeah. And some people are more sensitive to, the, to it than others. I, I gave a, a mate of mine a go of my bike. She's like, what do you think of those brakes? And he's like, oh, yeah, they feel fine. And I was like, okay, because I think I, I think they're unrideable. Yeah. 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 I, I, it's almost like they're trying to make them too light, too many adjustments. And there's like inconsistencies with seals and tolerances and i don't know what's going on i'm talking out my ass but i'm i just i'm not yeah. stoked with mountain bike brakes I, it's tried disappointing to ask them, shimano i've tried to ask them what's going on like are they just completely denied the problem yeah this was a while ago they may have changed their policy but like yeah there was yeah. no no response no answer that was useful but yeah it's not just shimano like like SRAM G2s, I don't know what what's going on with them. I, I don't think they're completely pointless. Like they redesigned the guide and they didn't make it any better. Like it's no better than the guide. I don't know why they exist. It's like the code, because the codes are good. If you get a good bleed yeah. on a set of codes with sintered pads uh, and you run the bike point all the way in, because why would you run it any differently? Um, they work well. Um but so it, people don't need codes, though. What's that? You know, people don't need codes. Like those G2s are for, for trail riders, you know, on 140 mil bikes or 130 mil bikes. And you could have you, too much brake. Would you, know? you not rather have a code on a 130 mil bike than a G2? Uh, me, personally? I mean, I know that the weight difference is minimal at this point, pretty much. Pretty much, um, yeah. But... Like if I had G2s on that bike or something else that was like 80% as powerful as a code on a trail bike, to me, that's an acceptable thing. Like, you know, yeah, I feel like... not the power. I, I don't have a problem with the power of the... Well, it's not so much the power. It's the, the, the G2 seem to be more inconsistent, more spongy. Oh, I see. Like less yeah. reliable. Yeah, the, okay. the codes are more solid. Yep, at the lever, they feel way more solid. I'd rather have a code with like 
even though like a 160 rotor. Yeah. If I, if I wanted to save weight, um, then yeah. a G2 with any size rotor. You know, I used to run Saint brakes on a trail bike with, I think I had like a 140 rear rotor with the mm-hmm. St. Brake and then like a 160 rotor up front with uh, good ridge lines. Anyways, uh, what do you think about Megura brakes before we close up? I've honestly not had a huge experience, amount of experience on them recently. Like the mm-hmm. Shimano and, and SRAM, we have so many test bikes, so many yeah. examples. Yeah. Uh, whereas with Megura, I think I've had one set in the last year and they were solid. Okay. They're solid on yep. that Starling Spur. Um, but yeah, I just don't have as much data. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was about the cheap brakes. Like the mm-hmm. cheap, the non-series and Dior Shimano brakes are amazing. Like the oh, two, yeah. The two-part Shimano, not even Dior. No, it's MT5 something or other. We had them at the Value Bike Field Test. They're so powerful. Dude, they blew us away and super firm at the lever. Uh, I mean, the descents were pretty short, so who knows? And we were on like light-duty trail bikes, but consistent, consistent. I had to sit on the, like a Saracen park bike. Mm-hmm. It's in pr- pretty big descents and they're absolutely solid. I go on my normal bike with codes and I was like, these feel kind of spongy and weak now. Yeah. Mano, that's a, Mano two parts are so sharp. That's what we were saying in, in Tucson, the value bike field test is that we would choose those MT five, whatever's over a set of like, freaking four piston shimano brakes or some four piston SRAM, SRAM brakes like they they blew us away which really underlines our complaints here you have these brakes that are super expensive and they 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 don't work or they're inconsistent it's crazy to me do you think modulation is a thing do you think modulation is just a way to put spin on sponginess no, I don't believe that at all because I far prefer how a admittedly lower power SRAM brake feels to me versus a higher power Shimano brake, not because of the lack of power. It's that like initial, like servo wave makes the brakes super firm. It, it helps yeah. make those Shimano brakes super firm, but it also turns them into a freaking light switch. Like on off, on off, and when it's raining or super dry, I just prefer that. I would, I guess, what I'm saying is, I, I guess I'm sort of agreeing with you. Actually, I'm, I'm saying I would have a tiny bit less power in exchange for more control at the lever blade. But, I, but, but through less power rather than through the modulation, the sort of sponginess that this. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I don't know, like because, because I ride. It, Codes are plenty powerful. Codes mm-hmm. are plen- plenty powerful for me. And I know people would argue Saints are more powerful. I don't need freaking Saints. I probably don't need freaking Codes. But I prefer the way that the Codes feel. And I would say they have more modulation, more like early pad contact control. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. But I've never thought I want more of that. I've never thought I want more... Um, like if there was a dial that could give you more modulation, I would turn it in the opposite direction. It, it's sort of like, you know, if there's a fork that you're always running fully open and you never, you you want it more open. It's kind of like that. Yeah. But you, if you could, if you could make it sharper with most brakes, I, I would. I, th- I think that those cheap Shimano two parts, they are pretty wooden. They're pretty yeah, off. They are actually gunk. Probably <laughs> like maybe that's a bit too extreme. But most of the high end four parts. I think 
they're kind of too spongy and it's like are they just mm. thinning sponginess as as modulation because yeah. it because it's hard I, to make a bit a bright powerful and sharp because you start running into problems with like flex in the caliper yeah. flex in the lever stretch of the hose like it's hard to make a break sharp and i wonder if they're like well let's just not try that hard and just say it's modulation Maybe, maybe. I mean, Shimano's done things to make their brakes feel sharper, like with the redesigned perch and stuff like that. Yeah. ServoWave does that same thing too. It brings the pads closer to the rotor quicker. It makes them feel firmer quicker. Yeah. Um, I don't like that. I don't I don't want that like lever blade. You pull the lever blade and it like has that firm instant, like it just stops. I, want, I do want a little more squishiness to it. So I, I think we're... We're probably opposite on that ends, and it, it okay. sounds like well, I would prefer a SRAM brake. You would prefer a Shimano brake. Yeah, I like a Shimano brake that is not doing the inconsistency thing. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's like unicorn. Fifty percent right now. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, yeah, you you can get them if you if you do like if you like overfill them with oil, they seem to work. Yeah. yeah. But you have to do that like every time the brake pads wear out, you got to redo. Advance the pistons and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, since we're since we're talking about this stuff, we should talk drivetrains for a few minutes before I let you go. You got a few more minutes? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What What do you prefer for a drivetrain? Are you a a SRAM guy or a Shimano guy? And I do not want you to be on a fence. Tell me what you prefer and what you like and why. Yeah. Um, I think like if you if you look at the comments, everyone seems to prefer Shimano. It's as if Shimano can do no wrong and SRAM are the devil. I actually think I've had quite a lot of bad experiences with Shimano drivetrains. I've had a few mechs break and um, I, I think I think SRAM drivetrains are pretty good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think they deserve the reputation they've got, certainly. And I love the the button thing that the mech holds the cage in place. I can't remember. Oh, cage lock. Yeah, cage lock. Yeah. 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 I actually really miss that. When I go to Shimano, like when I go to like take the wheel out or fix yeah. the chain or whatever, and like I, I I know you said not to sit on the front. I don't have a strong preference. Like the the clutch wears out on a on a SRAM mech, and that is a pain. Not I've adjustable. Had a couple of times with Shimano mechs where the uh, clutch stops working and gets stuck, and the cage mm. you can service it and you can fix it, but like the. On the on the older one on older ones you sometimes find the the cage uh, locks down and so the chain mm-hmm. is just baggy mm-hmm. and yeah it doesn't happen often but it's happened to me and yeah pros and cons I I, I w- if I was buying one I'd probably just look at uh, online and see which is cheapest yeah but, it doesn't determine the kind of bike you want let's just put it like no. that why yeah. what I'm not hugely enamored with is Axis. Oh shit! Here we go. Let's do this fight. Let's do it. <laughs> it's fine, but I just find it. I think they've they've designed the paddle to be sort of like a shifter, but also sort of not. Yeah, it just confuses me. It's like I would rather it felt like something totally different, just two two buttons, or something that felt exactly like a normal shifter. Yes. Maybe I've just not had a single bike with Axis for a long enough period of time riding nothing else. I can just never get used to it. And, and in either mode, you know how you can change which button yep. shifts up. The, the default mode, 
I can ride. When I switch it to the other mode, it's better, but I still sometimes like get it wrong. Yeah. And okay. I just wish they made it feel like a normal shifter. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I talk, I say lots of good things about Axis, but I will uh, concede that, man, yeah, the shifter, I feel like they could have gone a different route there with the, the paddle design, whether it's buttons or, yeah, just like make it look like a regular shifter, you know? Um, I like the fact that you're just pushing a button. Like, you know, you don't, you and I, when we're riding a cable drivetrain and you are going up a steep hill and you're shifting to a big, co- bigger cog because you need it and it's like super steep and technical and you can't really let off the power. Like, we know how to do that. And it comes naturally to us now. But would you agree there's a technique there, isn't there? Yeah, I, I think maybe if I'd never ridden a bike before, I'd probably prefer Axis. Yeah. But I suppose... Are you, you're saying you're a better shifter than I am? <laughs> no, definitely not. I, I, I mask the gears so often. Um, I, uh, for racing, Axis makes all the sense in the world, I feel like. Why is that? Why for racing... Because you're not thinking about anything. You're literally just touching the button. I can have my eyes closed, full of sweat. My mouth is like, I'm ready to barf up a hill. Or it could be the opposite. I could be going downhill. I am barely hanging on. Super nasty. There's a corner coming up. I got a break or there's a jump or a drop or whatever. And I don't have to push the shifter paddle a certain amount. I know this sounds trivial, but this is this is how it works. You push the shifter paddle a certain amount. You know, if you want two gears instead of three, you push it a certain amount and you feel the click with your thumb and you let it go. And then you got to take a pedal and like, but with the, with axis, you literally just push the button and it does it. Yeah. But also it's in those situations where you're in the red, where I like get confused by the shifter design. And yeah, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, when, when you're just casually riding up a hill, you can always be like, right, this button goes up, this button goes down. It's when you're yeah. thinking about the next corner that you get it wrong. The yeah. other thing, while we're on shifting, another point in favor of of SRAM or cheap Shimano is I hate the double upshift on XT and XDR shifters. Oh yeah, yeah. I yeah. always do it by accident. Like if I'm if I'm sprinting, I, I go to shift up a gear and I shift up two. Exactly. So that's why you need access. <laughs> or it's an SLX shifter. Yeah, or or an SLX, you could just move down, I guess. Or any yeah. shifter. Yeah, interesting opinions. It's good, eh? Opinions, yeah. I'm sure everyone will have a different opinion. Just like assholes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Seb, I've got another podcast to record. You probably got stuff to do as well. But before we go, what are you working on right now? What should we expect as far as tests and articles go from you in the in the near future? Uh, depending on when this comes out, I've got a review. Coming up of a Stanton, uh, titanium carbon thing. Yep. Um, got the Atherton bike to review as well. Gonna at some point try and squeeze in that long travel versus short travel thing with the with the new proof bikes. Still waiting on a shock for that, so I can test them with the same shock. And then the Zeb thirty eight thing. Yep. Loads of things. Don't know what order I'm going to do them. Don't know when I'm going to fit them in, but I'm going to try and. You heard it here. Stay tuned for that Zeb 38 thing tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, review drops. Yeah. Not tomorrow. Definitely not. All right, Zeb. Thank you for your time. Thanks, man. See you soon.